This is Ann Doherty, and on today's episode of Current, we will be talking about climate justice from a local perspective, um, in particular through an interview with Yasmin Ansari. Between Biden's recently released climate plan and the Moving Forward Act recently signed by the House of Representatives, um, conversations on climate are increasingly of interest. Now, for those of you listening, if you're listening to this this podcast, of course, it's always been of interest to you. But in um, insofar as it's valuable to think about clean energy and climate action through the lens of local politics, we thought that this was a great opportunity to hear what's going on on the ground in Arizona, in particular, in the, the Phoenix area, which is the reason why we're so grateful to have today's guest on the podcast, Yasmin Ansari. Yasmin Ansari is a principal advisor for Mission 2020, an organization devoted to accelerating climate action. As an Arizona native, um, she is a proud graduate of Stanford University, where she earned her degree in international relations and is the daughter of Iranian immigrants. She later interned for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and soon thereafter received her master's degree in international relations and politics from the University of Cambridge. She served on the team that advised former United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and helped to deliver the historic Paris Climate Agreement. So all so impressive. Um, She worked for former California Governor Jerry Brown as Deputy Director of Policy for the Global Climate Action Summit. And if her name sounds familiar to any of you on the call, it's because she is a candidate running for the city of Phoenix's City Council, District 7, recently earning the endorsement of Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego. Yasmin, it's lovely to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you. I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, given everything that you have going on in your life right now. Um, and with the sake of um, honor, or for the sake of honoring your time, let's go ahead and jump into our first question. Um, so we're going to talk a little more about national and local politics shortly. But before we do, it's clear that environmental justice is central to your work and your values. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to take on roles where climate is at the front of cent- at the front and center of your work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually, you know, never expected when I was an undergrad that I would work on the climate issue. Um, I was studying international relations at Stanford and my focus was the Middle East and international security. I spent a lot of time um, studying Arabic and living abroad and working with uh, refugees in Jordan. Um, So that was, you know, I kind of envision myself working at the State Department or U.S. Embassy abroad. But um, when I graduated, I won this public service fellowship um, that afforded me the opportunity to work in the field of public service for 10 months after graduation. And when I um, when I won the fellowship, I started doing some interviews with different people. And one of the people I spoke with um, is a mentor of mine now. His name is Bob Orr, and he served as the Assistant Secretary General for Strategic Planning at the United Nations in New York. Um, And one of the, you know, and his, so he worked for former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, 
a very, very impressive, brilliant person. And he led all of the climate and sustainability work, sustainable development work um, for Ban Ki-moon. And when I spoke to him, it was actually that conversation that changed everything for me. You know, he was like, look, if you care about international security, if you're passionate about refugee and migration issues, climate change is literally the issue. It's the defining issue of our time. You know, if we let um, climate change go unchecked and, you know, the trajectory that we're currently on continues, the mass migration that we will see in the coming years will, you know, devastate the world. And obviously that's been true. And, and you know, one tangible example that people don't really think about is even um, the crisis in Syria that occurred, you know, started back in the early, late uh, 2000s. Um, the result of it was a six-year drought that was happening in Syria, or the, the beginning of it was a six-year drought that was happening in Syria that led to migration from the rural to urban centers. And, um, you know, that coupled with government mismanagement and uprisings, you can just see that climate change is a threat multiplier, and this is something that's happening already in so many cases. So I was just so convinced by that conversation. And when I went to work for the UN Secretary General, um, you know, as a 22 year old, it, it was a steep learning curve. I didn't really uh, know anything going in, but it just, you know, the, the gravity of how, you know, climate change is an all encompassing issue. It impacts public health, it impacts national security, um, it impacts human rights issues. It really is everything. Um, and so, it just became clear to me that this was um, something that not only, you know, I wanted to work on, but I think everyone, you know, should be working on in some way, shape or form. Um, so that's what I spent the past six years doing. Um, and definitely one of the main reasons I decided to run for office uh, was because of the role that I think cities um, are playing and can and should play in the fight against global climate change. I'm so excited to talk more to you about that or with you about that. Uh, like you, I had a similar experience with respect to climate change. I was very passionate about social justice and political action. And a lot of my focus was in public health, was really interested in public mm -hmm. health questions and, and, you know, missed the way that the environment and climate really intersected with those issues. Um, Largely because, honestly, when you're when you're organizing on the street and you have issues of poverty and you have issue of food scarcity and issues of um, some of number of things we're dealing with right now, the climate can feel quite distant. And it sounds yeah. to me that having that voice really come forward for you and and not just any voice, an incredibly powerful voice, and Secretary General Ban Ki Moon really drove that home for you. I'm curious to know as you think about hopefully your future constituents, how are you thinking about making that connection for them? Um, what are you going to do or say that will help make that link towards some of the everyday, more immediate concerns that people have with um, what people might argue is a, a farther off concern like of climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, what you said really resonates because I think actually one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone will say, you know, oh, you know, Yasmin works on the environment, for example, because to me, climate change is so, you know, it's not just, it is of course about the environment, but it's more so to me about um, the issues of public health and national security and like the devastation 
that we're going to see um, for so many people around the world. And I think when it comes to a local level, um, what really uh, resonates and what I talk a lot about in our campaign is air pollution and the, you know, the health impacts um, that air pollution has. So, you know, Phoenix has, we are, I think, ranked seventh in the country for worst air pollution. And there's just, you know, so much research about how that um, impacts health, whether it's asthma in children or lung cancer rates. Um, it is very clearly linked to higher rates of these health issues. Um, and that largely affects communities of color, uh, low income communities. So it's just, you know, and I think that's something that really does resonate when I was knocking on doors prior to the pandemic in January and February. Um, there were a lot of people who, who brought up air quality as their top issue when I would ask, you know, what is what is it that you want your next city council member to focus on? There are certain neighborhoods in District 7 where I'm running um, that have even worse air pollution than the rest of Phoenix because of um, some of the factories that are there, the industrial sites that have been there for many years. And, you know, it's important to note that a lot of these, you know, the city was sort of designed this way, unfortunately. Environmental racism is something that's been rampant in Phoenix, but also rampant in many places around the country because it's easier for, you know, industries to, um, to settle down in communities that are communities of color or low-income communities because they just don't see as many complaints from that. So that's something that I really want to work on, I think. You know, even when we look at COVID right now, there's study, um, there's research coming out of Harvard University that shows that um, in areas where there is um, higher levels of air pollution, you're seeing higher numbers of people hospitalized and dying from COVID-19. So it's all very much interlinked. I think that really resonates with people. And I think also in Phoenix, you know, the heat issue, we um, are, you know, we're every year it's getting hotter. We're breaking records every single year. Arizona's running out of water. Um, every year, we're also breaking records in terms of the number of people who die from heat-related deaths. Um, and just in general, each year, more Americans die from extreme heat than are killed from storms, floods, and wildfires combined. So these are real issues that impact people right now on a daily basis. And it's not, you know, it's not some far, far flung thing in the future. Um, it's, it's happening now. I really appreciate the perspective you've provided on extreme heat because I I think in many ways we, you know, I think it's a deeply human thing, kind of point to very clear disaster situations and see those as the effects of climate change and as perhaps the most brutal effects when, as you've just underscored, this more sort of pervasive problem around extreme heat that's not maybe a singular incident, but something that reoccurs is actually in many ways, as you've described, um, more detrimental to health and well-being than, um, say, as you said, a storm or a natural disaster. Um, so I find that really compelling. As you're talking to people post-COVID, has anything changed in the way that they're thinking about or conceptualizing the challenge of climate change? Um, I think so. I mean, I definitely think that the conversation in general, at least at a national and international level, has changed. Um, I think what COVID has exposed is just how unprepared we are um, as a society for crises like this to hit. And 
you know, I've seen a lot of really compelling tweets even um, that, you know, that talk about how, you know, if you think COVID-19 is bad, the slow burn um, and all of the devastation that we'll see from uh, the climate crisis over the next few years and the next decade, you know, this will be a joke compared to that. And I think, I think that has been a wake up call. I think there's a lot of um, cities and countries around the world that, you know, are trying to think more deeply about their long-term resilience. Um, and something, you know, our campaign has done, obviously with a city council campaign, you know, you have a very small team and most of your time is spent um, focused on talking to voters, but we have tried to do a lot of policy research and, um, you know, put out a lot of plans. And so we actually released this COVID-19 resilience and recovery plan um, that very much interweaves, you know, it, it responds to climate health um, crises together. So I do think that's very important. It is all linked um, and resilience is going to be very, very important when it comes to urban planning in the future because there's just certain consequences of climate change that are inevitable at this point. And it's um, cities are going to have to do everything that they can to adapt to those and, you know, make it possible for people to continue living there. Yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting to think about um, resiliency as something that is, is being created and built up from the local level, which is an important thing to remember in many ways as we look at uh, what's going on at the federal level right now. So mm -hmm. as you know, the Moving Forward Act was basically this infrastructure bill that was laced with climate action. Um, in it, it contains a number of um, investments like 70 billion to transform the nation's electric grid. Now, granted, we've been trying to make movement on this for a number of years through a number of different policies, but this, this one in particular includes um, renewable energy, um, expanding that um, resource more broadly, um, investing in existing infrastructure, including electric vehicles, et cetera. But um, word is that Senator, um, Mitch McConnell is really making it quite clear that it's going to be dead on arrival when it gets to the U.S. Senate. Now, if we think about um, the local level, as you've mentioned, you've um, created a COVID-19 uh, resiliency and, and recovery plan that specifically brings climate into conversation. Where does infrastructure fit in that conversation um, as you're thinking about uh, climate? Well, I mean, I think that infrastructure is a huge, huge part of um, the problem and the solution. So two of the main issues that I like to focus on, because I think it's where cities can have a big impact, are transportation and infrastructure. Um, so, for example, I mean, currently the state legislature in Arizona preempts uh, the city from being able to set really, you know, explicit standards on energy efficiency, for example. Um, and I've spoken to several different developers in the Phoenix area who at least claim that they would like to, you know, they would want, they do care about sustainability and they want to prioritize that when developing new um, infrastructure buildings in the city, but that they don't see leadership or incentives from the city council um, to help make that happen. So that's definitely that's some, something that I um, want to lead on and will lead on if I'm elected. I think, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done when it comes to new buildings in Phoenix, you know, there being high standards for renewable energy, for energy efficiency, for, you know, shade and trees that are um, built around the property. 
And then that can also create a lot of jobs. I think that's another piece of the puzzle that people need to really think about is that, you know, and that's what the whole, um, you know, the Green New Deal framework is all about, right? Is like the potential for transforming our country for the better and creating uh, millions of jobs in the process. So I think at the local level, that's something that can be done too. You know, retrofitting our existing buildings. Um, and then the other piece of the infrastructure question is, I think infrastructure for transportation systems, right? So um, Phoenix obviously has, uh, you know, car culture is big here. Uh, while we have light rail and a bus system, most people do need a car to get around. Um, and it's actually really hard. I, I do have an electric vehicle, but when I was um, looking for different options of what kind of electric car to buy, I remember there were so many of them that you couldn't even find in dealerships in Arizona, which is just like insane to me. You know, I had to go to, I would have had to go to LA to even find the car. And I think um, the city council could play a really good role developing public private partnerships to add to the infrastructure of um, like charging stations, let's say, so that um, just in general, I think, you know, there's a ton of work that can and should be done when it comes to making electric vehicles more accessible and affordable to everyone. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, a lot of work to do, but I think, you know, we're, we're off to a good start prior to, I think, Mayor former Mayor of Phoenix, Greg Stanton, did a great job of putting sustainability on the map here in Phoenix. Um, and I know Mayor Kate Gallego is that this is a huge priority of hers as well. So I really look forward to working with her um, to make Phoenix a more sustainable city. Um, and, you know, that includes infrastructure and transportation. Great. And uh, for those who are listening who may not know, uh, the state of Arizona is actually in the process of developing a transportation electrification plan for for the state that is currently underway. And um, also, if, if you're not aware, there's a stakeholder process that Illum is facilitating as part of this um, that would definitely probably benefit from your voice and, and perspective, if, if that's of interest, in, in all your spare Very time. Very cool. Sure. Uh, <laughs> no, that's yeah. awesome. I that. <laughs> yeah, I will, cool. um, be sure to share the information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, uh, as you know, uh, you, the utility sector is a sector that we serve uh, at Illum insofar as the number of the public initiatives that are really attempting to move the needle on grid infrastructure, resiliency, reliability, and, um, and climate uh, mitigation are actually funneled through utilities in a number of different programs and initiatives. Um, when you think about um, the utility sector itself, is there anything that gives you hope and um, is there anything on the other side that gives you pause, things that you would like to see changed? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the announcement that uh, APS made last year, definitely, you know, last year or the year before, I'm losing track of time, but it definitely gives me hope. I think, obviously, we all know um, there have been a lot of issues with APS and, um, you know, their stances on this, but um, the announcement that they made to move toward 100% carbon-free power by 2050, um, which as I understand includes interim targets of 65% clean electricity by 2030, and saying that they will remove coal from their portfolio entirely by 2031. I do think that actually is a really um, promising announcement um, coming from, you know, the largest utility in Arizona. 
Um, obviously, as somebody who whose job it always has been to push for urgency when it comes to climate action, I'm always going to say, you know, I hope that they move the 2050 goal. Uh, they push it forward. You know, 2040 um, would be great. You know, the the faster we can stop relying on coal, the better. But I do. That definitely does give me hope. Um, and then also in the you probably saw in the recent Washington Post um, piece about how Phoenix is going to survive climate change. They talked about how to ward off shortages, um, the city recycles all of its wastewater and developers in Arizona uh, must guarantee a hundred year water supply for any planned community. So that's also something that gives me hope. Um, and I think in terms of what makes me pause is the still just the continued reliance on natural gases um you you know we always see phrases like natural gas is the most sustainable fossil fuel and you know that statement in and of itself is a contradiction because i mean the words sustainable and fossil fuel just don't go together so um we can't continue to pretend like they're sustainable or reliable or smart in any way at this point um so that is that still, I think, is an area for improvement. Yeah, great. Um, really important to sort of file, file those away as we're thinking about our conversations moving, moving forward. Um, now, I understand that um, you work with a lot of young people who not only support your ground campaign, but also help draft some of your positions and help you frame issues. What are you seeing um, that is driving young people in this moment um, around climate and then in, and specifically with respect to your campaign. Yeah, it's uh, this is actually one of my favorite parts of my campaign. Um, so we started this campaign fellowship program back in the fall um, and it's run by my deputy campaign manager. Uh, this she's 22 years old. Her name is Mackenzie Saunders. She's absolutely incredible. Um, and we, you know, we just came up with this idea of starting a more substantive program for young people to get involved with a local campaign. Because I think usually, I mean, campaigns definitely have interns, right? But mostly you have um, field organizers and we thought we'd offer different areas. But anyway, we That's got great. so many applications so quickly. Right now we have um, 25 plus uh high school, college, and graduate students who, you know, they do field work, they do policy research, finance, and communications. Um, and it's really exciting. I mean, I think a lot of them, they definitely are excited about the climate issue and recognize the urgency because, you know, they understand. I think young people understand very well that this is something that they're going to have to deal with in their lifetimes. But I think there's also an element of, like, um, you know, my, I, I, being a younger candidate myself, I am the youngest in the race. I am still in my 20s. So I think there's also something exciting to all of the fellows about someone who isn't super far off from their own age um, running for office and being part of that. You know, I'm honestly like good friends with many of them now <laughs> because we're very much, you know, part of the same, um, we have the same mindset on a lot of things and part of the same generation, but they're doing a lot of amazing work. I mean, you'll see on our website, um, which is yasaminforphoenix.com, we have really detailed policy positions um, on a whole host of issues. Um, and like I said, two detailed, um, very detailed policy plans that we recently put out, one on the COVID-19 recovery and then the other on police reform and accountability. 
That's great. I just have to commend you for providing substantive roles to young folks in uh, developing policy making. As you said, it's all too common that they're asked to organize or to hit the streets or knock on doors, but are not necessarily brought into the policy making process. So kudos to you. It's really exciting. Uh, and I'm sure that that will be incredibly inspiring to a number of our team members who are very invested in policy and, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, actionable um, change and movement forward in this moment. Um, so we do definitely see so much energy coming from from folks in their 20s and even younger now. So much of activism oh, yeah. is now being really led. It's, it's very cool. In fact, my daughter's Girl Scout troop recently announced that they were going to explore what it means to be an activist as a, as a career. Wow, that's <laughs> we're so gonna, cool. We're going to be activists as this group of 10-year-olds. So that I'm sure amazing. having models, it's very cool, very cool. And having models like you in the world and, and um, those who are supporting your campaign are, are driving a lot of that, that vision for, um, for young, really young people. Um, so with, um, with that, I'm curious to hear how you all are listening to your constituents and what you're hearing about their energy needs. What, um, what's coming forward specific to energy that, um, that you're hearing? And I should say your um, future constituents, to be clear. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I think some of it I've touched on a bit, but I, you know, from my experience, a lot of constituents do want to have, like, do want to be part of the solution. They do want to have solar powered houses. They do want electric vehicles. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of these sustainable solutions still are either expensive or just seem out of reach. Um, and honestly, it's, I think, also just kind of difficult to navigate for many people. Um, so I've heard a lot from people that they would be taking more action to reduce their carbon footprint, but they feel held back by these things. I mean, we can't all afford to drive brand new Teslas, right? So I think when it comes to transportation, like I said before, we have to do everything we can to make electric vehicles much more affordable and accessible. Um, so whether that's by adding more charging stations or by subsidizing or providing incentives for clean vehicles um, for, for families. And then I also think that we need to, you know, work on subsidizing clean energy systems and new homes and, and current homes and just look at innovative solutions that other cities around the country are implementing to remove this cost barrier for people. Um, and something I forgot to mention, which is really exciting for me personally about um, Phoenix and Mayor Gallego's uh, leadership on this issue is that um, she recently joined something called, I'm sure you know, called C40 Cities, which for those who don't know who are listening, um, is a coalition of mayors around the world who are committed to taking bold climate action. Um, and that is honestly a really, really big deal. I know Phoenix was trying to become, be a part of C40 for many years and now we are. And the reason that's exciting is honestly hugely because of the network. I mean, these are some of um, some cities around the world who are doing really, really cool things, you know, not just in the United States, but everywhere. And I think that network and having that kind of access will really help Phoenix um, learn a lot and implement some of these things in our own um, city. So when it comes to, you know, energy needs, I'm really excited to, to dive deep into 
um, the actual case studies of other C40 cities and figure out what we can do differently. Like Los Angeles, for example, um, you know, their mayor, Eric Garcetti, um, did their, their like own version of the Green New Deal and it's super ambitious and whatnot. So I think there's lots of lessons for us to learn and also really cool things that Phoenix is doing that, that other cities can learn from. That's great. I, um, you know, as we are moving through a number of crises in this moment from COVID-19 to climate change to police brutality, what is becoming increasingly clear is that local resilience and local leadership is more important than ever. And we recently had a uh, webinar with um, uh, a Nobel Prize winning um, climate scientist, actually, who uh, was on with um, a couple of our team members and one of the things that that he noted uh, dr ed vine and others was essentially that um, we are building resiliency in this very distributed way and then that really ought to be in many ways the way we think about resiliency uh, mm. because it is important that we have that that redundancy but also attention to local issues and the unique effects that any one of these issues is having in the local context um, so I find this all quite inspiring and excited to hear about your, your plans and initiatives for Phoenix. Um, as you know, and you know, as we've alluded to on the call, we have a number of folks from utilities who do listen to this podcast or people who serve them or serve the public sector, the public energy sector. And um, I wanted to give you an opportunity before we draw to a close to say something or bring something to light uh, with respect to the constituents you aim to serve that you want them to know, something that they should be considering. So it's a very open question, but would love um, to give you the opportunity to, to have some remarks to that effect. Hmm. Okay. That's a good one. <laughs> I mean, I would just say, you know, I think we're at the point where there's no question the science is, abundantly clear um, that climate change is the most urgent issue of our time. And I just think that like we need all systems of our society to be acting with that kind of urgency to address it. And we really need to think about it um, in like a holistic way, right? So we need to just transform every way that we live. And I think when it comes to a local level and how, you know, utilities or cities or, you know, what we should be thinking about in Phoenix. I think we have um, to consider just what we can all do to improve the health of our communities. I mean, um, the air that we breathe is, you know, something that like we all have a, a right to breathe uh, clean air and anything that we can do to reduce that pollution and just think in a more sustainable way. Um, I think now is the time to do it. And um, we're only going to see the impacts of climate change um, grow. And, you know, even like, I think this is such a great opportunity um, to come out of COVID-19 and come out of 2020 thinking um, in a way to make our societies more resilient. So I just, urge everyone to really join in on that mission. Um, you know, the campaign that I work for, Mission 2020, we always try to talk about this in a very, like, it's not just, you know, our small organization um, working on this, on this mission, but this should be everyone's collective mission to accelerate climate action and just create a new world that um, is healthier and more sustainable for all of us. 
Great. Thank you so much, Jasmine. It's been just so wonderful to connect with you. I've personally found this podcast very energizing, this conversation very energizing, and I'm sure that our listeners will as well. We wish you the best of luck, both in terms of uh, the election, but also, frankly, in just, you know, staying well, uh, taking care of yourself through all of it, and um, really um, hope that you have a positive outcome on the other end. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Anne. This was really, really um, fun, great conversation. Thank you again for having me. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Current. Uh, Current is produced by Loom's production team, Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Be well, everyone. Take care, and we will talk to you soon.